All right. So welcome back to Anthropologically Speaking. My name is Katie, and I'm one of your hosts. My name is Iz. I'm one of your other hosts. And I'm Isabel. I'm your third host. Today we're joined by Dr. Rebecca Gilmore, who is a professor in the anthropology department. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me on today. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. <laughs> so as you may have guessed, Dr. Gilmore is an anthropologist. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about specific type of anthropology that you do? Yeah, so I'm a biological anthropologist, a bioarchaeologist. So I study skeletal remains from archaeological contexts. So the research that I do is predominantly focused on looking at trauma and the long-term consequences of that trauma. So if you break an arm or a leg, what happens after? Once you're healed, once you're ready to go back to work, once you're ready to read, you know, walk around and do stuff again. Can you? Do you? And so I look at that sort of adaptation in human individuals. Uh, a lot of the work that I've done has been Roman-based, so I do excavation and analysis in places like Austria and Hungary in the United Kingdom, as well as in Italy, um, and other places as well. So... Very cool. And um, one thing that I, I've heard about you is that you've actually broken a lot of bones yourself. <laughs> so. Yes. <laughs> so that's actually one of the reasons that, you know, when I got into anthropology, when I started, I studied, I did my undergraduate at Simon Fraser University. And so it's an it was an archaeology only department at the time. And when I started to do skeletal analysis and all that stuff, and people started to ask, you know, what did you want to study and what do you want to do? Well, I'd already broken my leg twice and broken both of my arms and my nose and all this other <laughs> stuff and I thought well you know what more perfect than to study trauma and like what I will look like in 20 years 30 years 40 <laughs> mm -hmm. years time what happens to my body and let's look at it in archaeological contexts try and tell me more about myself so that's why I got into this whole thing is because I break so much and then actually since then I've continued on and I've broken lots of other things since. <laughs> most recently about two years ago I broke my talus which is a bone in my ankle so that was oh. you know nobody's good fun because now I have all of this immediate experience for recovery and impairment and it's so interesting how it articulates with the research that I do. I'm sure you like to look at your own x-rays. Oh my then. goodness. I, the orthopedic surgeons, I'm probably their worst nightmare when I go in for these appointments because I can read my own x-rays and I have all these questions for them that typical people might not. Isabel went in for an x-ray on the weekend and I begged her if I could see the x-rays but even she didn't get an opportunity so that was oh, tragic. They didn't let me see them. I was very disappointed. Oh no, you know you can order them. I should yeah, sign up should. for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of funny because I've even heard like of anthropologists going in to like the dentist and being like, "Oh yeah, the lingual surface," and they're like, "What? How do you? How do you know this?" So <laughs> what happened to me at the dentist? I was like, "Oh, I'm like doing a study on teeth right now," and they're like, "What?" And it was, I felt smarter than I should have. <laughs> really cool um so kind of going back to last week it'd be nice if you could let us know like how you got started in anthropology as an undergrad yeah uh so I was telling some of you guys this story a little bit earlier today uh but I was one of those really weird kids who knew exactly what they wanted to do for a really long time mm -hmm. like since I was eight years old almost and when I was in grade eight so early high school uh we had to do these career and personal planning presentations about what we wanted our career to be, what we wanted our future occupation to be. And I was 
adamant that I was going to be an archaeologist. <laughs> I was so certain of it. And so I put together this is like pre-computer PowerPoint days. And I put together these like uh, overhead acetate slide things of, you know, the, the types of things that I would need to do to be an archaeologist, the types of degrees I would need. And then I illustrated all the tools that I would have to have, like the trowels and things like so that. you knew from the start. Oh, I knew <laughs> from the start. And then I just stubbornly stuck with it. So mm -hmm. uh, from really early on, I was actually, um, <laughs> I emailed people like professors in departments in grade eight wow. to find out <laughs> how to be an archaeologist. I know. And so, and I just kind of stuck with it is mm -hmm. that I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so right after high school, I did a year exchange and I was a rotary exchange student and lived in Vienna for a year. So I learned how to speak German out there and I got in touch with some local archaeologists and local sort of history groups mm -hmm. uh, through that experience and then came back. I'm from British Columbia originally and I came back and I did a year at a community college and then transferred out to Simon Fraser. And I chose SFU at the time because it had an archaeology only department and stubborn me had to do archaeology <laughs> because it's your <laughs> undergrad was in archaeology. It was in archaeology, yeah. So at once joining that department, we did lots of, there was lots of stuff. You know, you did lithic analysis, you did ceramic analysis, you did some zoo archaeology, which is where you uh, look at animal bones as well. Um, but I had one professor who I found quite inspiring, and he was a biological anthropologist. And he did a bit of forensics, but he also did a little bit of paleoanthropology. And I I just loved his, his courses, and I, I just kind of followed it through from there and then went off and did a, a master's in paleopathology and my PhD in, in biological anthropology here at McMaster. Wow. So that means you've been on a few digs. Do you oh, want to let us yeah. talk about that, how it is? Mm -hmm. and oh my goodness, the excavations are so fun. I've had a chance to do lots of different excavations in lots of different places, things that are just pure archaeology where you're just looking at features and buildings and post holes and other things. But I've also been really lucky to do some cemetery excavations. And oh, where should I start? <laughs> um I, ooh, okay, so I've done both contract archaeology and research archaeology. And contract archaeology is when you want to go out and, and, or when a firm is hired to remove archaeological remains from a location prior to building a house or a basement or sometimes a pool or uh, maybe a road or a pipeline. And so I've been lucky to do some contract archaeology projects, uh, mostly in Europe. Um, so I was hired in the UK and we, we um, excavated a Quaker cemetery is that they had sold the land, the Quaker church had sold the land to a building developer and they were going to put in a, a row of houses in that region and they'd done a sort of a, a investigation, a preliminary investigation. They thought there was only going to be a few graves. There were many, 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 <laughs> oh, many, wow. many graves. And it was a, the, the unit that we were looking at was maybe about half the size of a, a football field. So it wasn't that big, but I think they, they retrieved something like 600 individuals. I'm just, I'm, I can't quite remember mm -hmm. But we oh, were there yeah. for a while, and it was in the north of England, so Newcastle, and it was very cold, and it rained a lot, and we were always very muddy and had to take public transit home. Um, <laughs> but excavating that was so fascinating because individuals in that particular cemetery, the, the soil was still quite moist and a little bit waterlogged, and so there was so, some 
organic preservation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, the individuals themselves are still mostly skeletonized, mm-hmm. but in post-excavation, so when we were cleaning the skeletons afterward, we definitely found some brain tissue. Wow. So that was something else. Um, and when you're actually doing the excavation at that particular site, the coffins were still intact. Oh, so wow. you dig down on top of them and have to remove the initial waterlogged sort of coffin boards, oh. the, the top of the coffin, oh. and then you'd excavate the dirt and stuff that had infil- infiltrated mm-hmm. the interior of the coffin, and then you'd excavate the individual, and then you'd have to remove the rest of the coffin, the base of the coffin and the sides and stuff. So that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I've done other things like Roman cemetery excavations as well, and those were those were very different. You know, things can be looted sometimes. And mm-hmm. um, the cemetery that I excavated outside of Vienna with again another archaeology contract firm uh, had quite a bit of disturbance, and so not all of the graves were left in situ, which means not all of them were left intact the way that they'd originally been placed. Um, some were kind of mixed around, others were missing parts. Um, not a lot of grave goods. There not a lot of you know people ask me often what's the coolest thing I've ever found. <laughs> I, it's not gold. It's no. not yeah, jewels. No. no, it's just really interesting skeletal remains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I I would imagine just I mean those examples that you gave are really different. So I mean I guess that really shows how much a bioarchaeologist has to be able to be adaptable to different conditions and different even different levels of preservation because I understand that in the archaeological context you're not really going to get like a perfect medical grade skeleton. <laughs> no, very rarely like there's some contexts that yeah the the preservation is actually quite remarkable but many of them it's a little bit sad sometimes because we wish everything was perfectly preserved, right? We mm-hmm. that would be in an ideal situation but it's frequently not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been lucky. One of the sites that I've been recently working with is a documented site. So we know the age of the individuals when they died. We know their sex. And for oh. some of them, we know their names and how many children they had. That's, and that's really so cool. And that is very well preserved. Yeah. So it's really rewarding to have all that extra information from an archaeological site and really good skeletal preservation. Yeah. And um, I guess as well, like a lot of people wonder like why it's important to study the dead. Like if we do have that kind of context and we have, you know, their names and we have literary sources and documentary sources from the past, what kind of extra things can um, a skeleton show us that we might not get from like a text sample? Well, the skeleton doesn't lie, does it? <laughs> right? Yeah. We said that in the last Oh, episode. you did? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The bones um, can't lie. Yeah. Bones don't lie. Is that they preserve all of this little minute evidence of all of the experiences or many of the physical experiences that we've had throughout our lives. And so even though we may have textual evidence and even though we may have documentation for these individuals, we don't necessarily have interviews about their what their day-to-day life experiences were, you know, what it was like hiking up a mountain every day to go to work. And admittedly, the skeleton can't tell us all of that, but we can glean extra information about experiences. And that's some of the work that I've been doing on impairment is that I incorporate um, biomechanical uh, premises. I look at sort of how bones, because bones are living 
structures within our body's bones can adapt and can adjust to the different sorts of strains and stresses that we put on it day to day. And so if we're really, really active throughout our lives, if we go hiking all the time, if we walk long distances, especially over more rugged or uneven terrain, our bones are going to incorporate that. They're mm -hmm. going to, to buttress themselves to resist that strain because they really don't want to break. <laughs> they want to kind of keep going, right? And so we can look at that sort of evidence in our skeletal system to say something about what that person's active experiences were like. And then my research, you know, what their experiences of injury were like. What types of injuries are certain people getting? Why? And that maybe it's something gendered. Maybe it's something that's happening to certain aspects or subsets of a population mm -hmm. and not to others. And so even though we have that historical documentation for some contexts, there's so many other layers that often are missing, especially because um, the people that write those histories aren't necessarily properly or fully representing mm -hmm. the entirety of Absolutely. that group's mm -hmm. experiences. Yeah. yeah. So is your research looking, um, would you say, for patterns? Patterns in, like, trauma patterns in yeah see. yeah and I have seen some patterns it depends on the context is that um I have I like to kind of apply two different layers is that the first would be that sort of patterns what generally is going on in a society mm -hmm. do we see sort of uh gendered patterns in trauma are women tending to get fractures in certain ways whereas men get fractures in other ways and what does that say about sort of social life in that mm -hmm. community but I also really like to explore individual experiences and uh somebody's individual experience of an injury can be really different and really varied from somebody else's experience is that if two people both break their right wrist those two people may respond quite differently to that injury and some of it will be influenced by the the social circumstances in which they both live the cultural kind of factors that influence somebody's reaction to pain mm -hmm. or reaction to sort of you know what you're supposed to do once you get sick. Uh, but sometimes it can be very individual, like how we perceive and understand pain, how we respond to things can be very, very personal. And so the types of work that I do has that sort of multi-layered kind of aspect to it, a little bit of overarching social yeah. patterning type thing, but then also trying to get at an individual's experience because that individual's story is just as important as, as the overarching whole. It's really interesting. Unique stories in bioarchaeology. Yeah. Sounds very hard. To I do. just feel like that reminds us of the class we took with you, where it kind of just taught us to second guess everything we see on the skeleton that Definitely. indicates a mm -hmm. so-called disability and how people react to pain and how basically everything is contextual and you can't look at something and it be a discrete uh, symptom and you know what I mean? It's kind of... It was really interesting. That, yeah, yeah, you can like, talk about that class a bit if you want. Sure, yeah. So I teach, I've been teaching a special topics class here, uh, the uh, anthropology or the, what did I call it? The bioarchaeology of disability, disability and care. care. Yeah. yeah, and so it's listed under ANT3W03. I'm actually teaching it next term, and there's space available. Oh, Sign up, guys. Take it again. <laughs> One of the best classes. It's, it's a really interesting field because uh, the bioarchaeology of disability and the bioarchaeology of care is something that's still really developing is that there's more and more research being done by other scholars on people's experiences and disability is something that's actually also a social construct is that a person can have a physical experience and can have an impairment but if they're disabled by that impairment is totally dependent on the society in which they live mm -hmm. if there's these barriers and to participation that are erected e even physical barriers but also social barriers if a person can actually 
interact given that sort of limitation that they may be experiencing. So in the course, because it's a relatively new field, there is so much that we still don't know and so much that's worth exploring and, and reconsidering and thinking critically about in terms of somebody's experiences. And so I'm trying to remember, like, all we did some fun stuff in that class. <laughs> really fun. It was really fun, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the activities that I really think about um, was when we tried to... I guess kind of in a way simulate um, age. So we put like the lip balm on the <laughs> on the glasses. Oh, it was so difficult. And like performing simple tasks like buttoning a shirt was really difficult with yeah, that. Yeah, we like taped our hands or something, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, I think I had you tape your, did I have you wear gloves and then tape your knuckles? Yeah, and then yeah. you made us go buy coffee and yeah, it was yeah, like with humiliating. Change, with yeah, with change. Well, I didn't mean to humiliate you. <laughs> the idea was that, you know, we would experience um, physical changes throughout our life course, right? As, as we age, those things that we used to be able to do that we wouldn't be able to do anymore, things that we would maybe lose or, or diminish function in like our dexterity or our eyesight or our hearing, things like that. I think I might have also made you wear earplugs. Yeah, we definitely wear earplugs. Yeah. Yeah. You Um, tell us how much the coffee was. It was like, what? (laughs) It's embarrassing. But it was a neat exercise to kind of just temporarily experience what it might like to have an age-related impairment and how you might really, because I paired you up with an able-bodied person, Mm -hmm. and how you might really rely on other people in that community to to help you accomplish these these tasks that currently we think of as relatively simple and straightforward. Mm -hmm. And so I think the goal was for us to think about care and about how maybe in the past in archaeological communities what can be defined as care and what can be defined even as an impairment if all of these things are normal and accumulate with age, are they even impairing or... Is yeah. it just because we have created these societies that are based around sort of able-bodiedness? And I feel like that was one of the coolest topics was determining what care exactly meant, whether it was like assistance medically or if it was compassion. And that was kind of mind-blowing and we could never really figure it yeah, out. But it I was agree. an interesting Inferring, topic. It was really interesting to talk about can you infer compassion from a past mm-hmm. society by just looking at if someone received care or not? If someone lived through an, uh, through an impairment. Yeah, yeah, and I'd say no. Yeah. <laughs> what no. Do you, I mean, yeah. you guys went through the course. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I, I would tend to agree with you. I think it's really difficult to figure out just from the evidence we have, whether it be uh, skeletal remains or material culture. Like, It's very difficult to infer intention um, in regards to compassion, because um, in some ways it may have been like a, what somebody saw as a duty, um, as opposed to like a heartfelt gesture. So it's mm-hmm. really difficult to try and figure that out. And that, that might be one of the things that is a bit of a limitation. Um, there are definitely limitations in a lot of things. And that that might just be one that we've run into in some ways. Yeah, and yeah. maybe in a lot of these cases, we'll never really know the mm-hmm. answer because mm-hmm. we can't speak to the individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some circumstances we'll be able to infer a little bit more than we than otherwise. Like maybe if they were buried with certain types of grave inclusions, it can say something about how that person was perceived within their society and that maybe if they'd had various impairments that maybe it was done with... Care is a terrible word for it because care is synonymous <laughs> with compassion in yeah. some contexts. Yeah. But when we're talking about this, we have to separate them, right? Mm-hmm. Is that absolutely? You know, care can just be treatment. You don't have to do it because you love the person, right? Yeah, and that's one thing that I find in a lot of uh, instances and scenarios in anthropology that when you're using words, you really have to define them, and because the way that one researcher might use a word might not be the same way that another researcher uses a word. So in order for everybody to start being on 
like a level playing field, starting to define those words and think about what they're really meaning is super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think we did a lot in your class, defining disability, defining impairment. Yeah. Um, and we did that a lot, like critically looking at texts, which I really liked in that class. We critically looked at how um, bioarchaeologists have framed they looked at a skeleton and they've kind of made these really big inferences about that person's life. Mm-hmm. They've told these stories and I really enjoyed critically looking at them and being like, can we really say that? Yeah. And sometimes the stories like are... Like Calvin... Oh, is it Calvin Cal- Wells? Calvin Wells. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you guys haven't heard of Calvin Wells before, go and, you know, have a quick Google. Go search him out. Some of... I mean, a very prominent biological anthropologist, very skilled, uh, most definitely, just some of the interpretations that he put out there. This is earlier on in our in our discipline's development. We're a little bit, you know, far-fetched. A little bit far-fetched <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> a little, yeah, and there's nothing wrong. There's some really amazing researchers out there that are telling these narrative stories of people's experiences in a way to kind of get uh, the community engaged with what's, what's going on archaeologically is that if you can write a story about that individual that the story is based on factual evidence that you've collected through your analysis of the schedule of the of the schedule of the skeleton <laughs> you know where my mind is at right? <laughs> the next thing on the list anyway um uh the through analysis of the skeleton you're able to then create this narrative it might not be an ex- exactly truthful narrative of what that person felt or or saw exactly but it's a way that people then might be able to start to connect mm-hmm. with those individuals and maybe that connection is an important outcome i'm thinking i think alexis dolphin is one of these researchers i can't remember where she's based now somewhere here local ish okay. yeah oh. i believe um and she does this sort of narrative type work it's really interesting yeah yeah, yeah and um i think it's a lot of it is just finding that middle ground because um it, it can be easy to find something and get really carried away with thinking, oh, this may have happened, this may have happened. But also there are some researchers out there who are like, we can't tell anything. And I think I think there's definitely, th- there's a middle ground. There are things that we can hypothesize and that we can mm-hmm. use education and prior knowledge in order to hypothesize about. Um, but yeah, it's it's really finding that middle ground. What can we say without... Um, making it too, I guess, out of the box and too improbable. Well, Mm -hmm. and some of our interpretations could be improved through uh, methodological advances, Mm -hmm. is that if we can't quite get at what, what, you know, that next step, can we approach the question from another angle? Can we develop another method? Can we collect data in a slightly different way to help shed light on that bit that's still kind of sitting in the dark? Which I think we tried to do in your class, right, with the index of care. Yeah, we tried. There's yeah. these different, everybody's suggesting new ways of kind of... Yeah, new frameworks. New frameworks, new ways of analyzing things. Yeah, the index of care is one of them. It's not something that I've personally applied in any of my research. And so this class that we keep talking about, I really like it. It's one of my favorite ones mm-hmm. to teach. I have so many favorite classes to teach. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one of my favorites. Um, because it articulates so nicely with the type of research that I do, is that I don't do disability so much myself. I don't always project my own research into that social sphere so I don't always look at care in particular but the the impairment is so integral to trying to understand some of those things as well and my research sits firmly in what I feel like I can measure and what I can say which is why I do the quantifiable Mm -hmm. impairment type Mm -hmm. research but that next step would be the disability and would be the care and would be sort of you know what's going on with these people's in terms of of their social experiences and using different frameworks to get there. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and I feel like that was really cool about the class is that it gave all of us as students a chance to kind of explore how what we know about skeletons and kind of second guess other researchers and look at skeletons that have already been studied and examined in a different way and kind of like put our own two cents. Yeah, yeah. exactly, into what we're writing and yeah. into these critical old reevaluation cases. is so important, yeah. right? Is that nothing's ever just finished, is that we can mm-hmm. always go back and and reexamine things and I think that's yeah. really important. Especially too with all the methodological advances that are always people are always coming out with new ideas and how to approach things. So revisiting things that we may have put aside for now. Um, with these new approaches we have is always really exciting because um, it, it can shed a lot of new light, new information on things. I think that's your guys' role, the next step for you guys. <laughs> You're going to be the next Ooh, you know, generation of people, methodological advances yeah. and new frameworks. Yeah, it's just really cool because I feel like a lot of other classes is just kind of teach you to maybe not so much question the academic resources that you're looking at and using for papers and it's mostly just use those make a new like a almost a lit review for most of what we're doing and so that was really neat in that course it kind of allowed us to get out of that box and and it's because it's such a new field yeah is that we don't have that much literature out there to review yet yeah. <laughs> like, we're yeah. still building it it's still so new it's still so kind of yeah. Yeah, it's a new field. Just developing, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, so if you want to maybe say what other courses, just for everyone listening, yeah. what other oh, courses yeah. do you teach at here at Mac? I teach lots. <laughs> lots and lots. Um, so this term I've been teaching um, two of the Anthropology 1AA3, so the Sex, Food, and Death courses. Uh, those are the big first-year courses. They're quite, I think they're quite popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and we explore lots of different things, sex, food, and death. <laughs> uh, so I often start a little bit with human evolution, then we talk a little bit more about um, sex and gender, and then we go into sort of food, and food is culture, and then we are currently in the death weeks, which are some of my favorites. Um, and then I teach uh, Intro to Biological Anthropology, Anthropology 2EO3. Um, I also teach a human osteology and bioarchaeology course to FF3. And next term, I'm teaching that special topic, the so disability and care one that we've been talking about, as well as a forensic anthropology, 3FA3. That one's one of my favorites as well. It's actually yeah. quite a bit that of fun. Was, yeah, yeah, that was one, one of my favorites. Year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that one. It's uh, a very sort of bonesy, like yeah. that TV show kind of <laughs> yeah. applied, how people use skeletal biology and legal legal context. Yeah, it's very popular, I feel like, for people to take electives because they think it's going to be like bones, and it kind of is, but yeah. It was yeah, and there's <laughs> very few prereqs, and so if there's people mm-hmm. out there that are interested in it, mm-hmm. there's there's not a lot of prereqs, so have a check out. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Might see some gruesome pictures, but <laughs> <laughs> worth it. Sometimes necessary. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the that course was really, really fun. I, I was able to take um, forensic anthropology with Dr. Gilmore last year. Um, and that was so much fun. I felt like I was a detective in some way <laughs> yeah. trying to figure out what are, happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I try studies. and make case studies and I try they and base fun. them locally and turn them into, I try not to make them too close to reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we're actually going to be doing a full week on forensics later. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ooh, that'll be exciting. That's one of our yeah. episodes to look forward to. Yeah, that'll be so amazing. So as we're winding down, um, do you want to tell us just about your favorite burial that you found or like one of the coolest... Oh my goodness, there's so many. Okay, so the Quaker Cemetery, because I talked about that already. Um, When I got the skeleton removed, and when I got everything excavated, it looked like on the bottom of the coffin boards, there were little beads of mercury 
that were rolling around in the Whoa. Bahamas. So I'm not entirely sure what that meant, but mercury was used as a, a treatment for various sort of diseases and conditions, oh. syphilis being one of them, as well as other things. Um, so and this was found at multiple in multiple coffins? It was, I only found it once. Oh, okay. I only found it once, and it was like, oh, what is that? I've never seen anything like it before. And so it would be so fascinating. I don't know if they've actually finished the analysis on that oh, skeleton, okay. but it would be so fascinating to see if that individual had been linked with any sort of skeletal lesion. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's mm-hmm. a mystery to be solved. Your interest in paleopathology. <laughs> so much interesting paleopathology, yeah. Yeah. but it's hard to pick just one. There's so many of interesting course. cases. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And what are you working on right now? Right now? Outside of teaching. <laughs> I was going to say lots of teaching. teaching. Um, but I'm working on a project looking at bone loss in fragmentary second metacarpals so that we can use these poorly preserved individuals and still incorporate them in our research and in our studies. Wow. That is Super duper cool. Um, So just to finish off the show, we're going to do our, uh, since this is a show about anthropology and humans, we're going to do a shout out to our non-human listener of the week. Dr. Gilmore, would you like to do a shout out? Sure. I'd like to give a shout out to my rabbit, Lindy. She's adorable and sitting at home right now, probably really sad that I'm not there to give her treats and snuggles. Um, She's recently apparently blind, which is really sad, but it means that her ears are very, very much working so perfect hey there Lindy (laughs) she's listening (laughs) yep so thank you very much thank you thank you very much for having me thank you it was great it was always extraordinary to hear what you say um (laughs) you have so much insight and still so excited about what you do so (laughs) I do love what I do it's really exciting (laughs) thank you very much girls thank you thank you Thank you very much. And don't forget to tune in next week to Anthropologically Speaking. Um, We'll likely have another guest, so that will be really fun. And once again, my name is Katie. I'm Iz. And I'm Isabel. And also don't forget to check out our Facebook page at Anthropologically Speaking. Have an amazing week and uh, stay bony.